When Michelle Hoffman found a scribbled note in an empty box of donuts at Camp Scott, Oklahoma, that read, We are on a mission to kill three girls in Tent 1, she decided it was most likely a prank. But what the Magic Empire staff member found that April afternoon in 1977 was an eerie premonition of what would become the biggest cold case in Oklahoma history. The note, which also rambled on about Martians and was signed, The Killer, was discarded. Real Crime presents The Girl Scout Murders. Less than two months later, 140 Girl Scouts arrived at Camp Scott. Within 24 hours, 8-year-old Laurie Lee Farmer, 9-year-old Michelle Goose and 10-year-old Doris Denise Milner would be dragged from their tent, molested and murdered. Though there are those who believe the prime suspect was the only viable perpetrator, there is evidence to suggest that the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation and the Mays County Police got it wrong. Welcome to The Real Crime Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Tanita. Now, I don't know about you, Ben, but this case, the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders, it breaks my heart. Why? Just because it's three sweet, innocent little girls that are the victims. They really look sweet. They they? do. They look like they should be on some sort of a cookie advert or something. Okay. Like they're just brimming with sweetness and... They're murdered in their tents on a Girl Scout trip. Like, it just doesn't get any more tear-jerking than that. I don't mm. know about you. But the, the weird thing is, um, no one saw or suspected anything was happening the night that, that it happened. Things were heard in the night, but no one even came close to imagining what was happening at the time. Yeah, you might think that, you know, a couple of girls were having a nightmare over in the tent far, far away. But actually, the horror of what was really happening was just way beyond what anyone could have guessed. Laurie Farmer was from Pulaski County in Arkansas. The youngest of the victims, and indeed all the girls at Camp Scott that summer, she was ecstatic to be going on the trip. Initially, she couldn't decide between Camp Scott and a camp sponsored by her local YMCA in Tulsa. Her mother, Sherry, decided for her, booking her daughter into Camp Scott for the week beginning 13th June 1977. Laurie's ninth birthday would have been just days later, and she couldn't wait to make new friends at the camp. Michelle Goose was equally excited. A student at Van Diva Elementary School in Broken Arrow, Tulsa, She had attended Camp Scott's summer camp the previous year and had reason to look forward to going back to the site with her friends for two weeks of fireside songs and outdoor pursuits. Before she left for the fortnight-long trip, she told her mother she would miss her and asked her to look after her African violets. Her parents later recalled it was as though she knew she would not be coming home from camp. Doris Milner, unlike the other girls, was anxious about being away from her family. The little girl, also from Tulsa, was unsure as to whether she would really enjoy herself. Her mother convinced her that she should give Camp Scott a chance and told her 
that if she really didn't like it, she only had to call and they would come to pick her up and bring her home. Doris had sold enough Girl Scouts cookies to attend camp with her friends, but at the last minute they had pulled out and she went alone. The three girls jumped off the bus at the campsite, a 44-hectare area located at a junction between Spring Creek and Snake Creek in Oklahoma. The 140-strong group was divided into different camps, with Doris, Laurie and Michelle placed in Kiowa camp with 24 other girls. They were then told to pick their tents. There were seven tents for the girls to choose from, each with four beds. Johanna Wright would later recall how she had considered sleeping in tent number seven, the one furthest away from the counsellor's tent. When she looked in it, she saw two girls already in there, but decided that it was too remote for her liking. Located 140 metres away from the counsellor's tent, tent number seven was situated just on the edges of the surrounding heavily forested Cookson Hills. It was the tent that Laurie, Michelle and Denise settled into. Another young girl who was supposed to have been on the trip had come down with a sickness the day before the camp started and her mother decided to keep her at home. This left tent number seven short of a camper and possibly spared another life. Before we get into the detail of what happened that night exactly, let's talk about the, the main suspect originally. This chap called Jean Leroy Hart, who in 1966, he abducted and he raped two pregnant women and left them in the remote wilderness, bound and gagged. One of them managed to escape, free the other and reported it to the police. And he got busted and he pled guilty to first degree rape and two counts of kidnapping. And he got quite a hefty sentence, didn't he? Yeah, so he got three concurrent 10-year stretches. So that's about 30 years in total. But he didn't get 30 years because in 1969, he was let out on parole. So three years. Yeah. After three years, he got paroled. Yeah, that's pretty quick. I think he's, he's got someone pulling the strings for <laughs> yeah, him. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, he wasn't out for long because while he was out on parole, he committed a burglary. And so that saw him put back in jail for a maximum of 305 years. Wow. That, is, that is a pretty hefty sentence. That's mm. not a slap on the wrists. Okay, so um, where does he come into play with, with the Girl Scout murders? Well, the reason he comes to the forefront of this is because in 1973, he busts out of jail and he is then on the run. And at the time that he breaks out of the jail, it's County Sheriff Pete Weaver who is in charge. Um, and that's quite significant to this story, as we'll see later on. Mm -hmm. But actually, the night of the 12th of June, the night that the Girl Scouts were all tucked in their tents, dreaming of ponies and sugar and spice and everything nice. Oh, you paint such a pretty picture, didn't you? Then Hart is in the forest, roaming nearby. So, convicted rapist, all-round nasty guy, in the forest nearby that night. Yeah. Back at Camp Scott, a fierce storm raged just after supper that first evening and the girls were sent back to their tents. Without much else to do, they penned letters to their families describing their first day at the camp. Councillors checked on the tents at 10pm when the rain died down before retiring for the evening to their own tents. 
18-year-old Susan Emery, 23-year-old Carla Willite and 20-year-old D. Ann Elder were sleeping in the councillor's tent and in charge of the campers on the site. Campers laughing outside of the latrine woke Willite up in the middle of the night. She got out of bed and inspected the area with a flashlight before taking the girls back to bed. An hour and a half later there was another disturbance, this time from tent number five, when Willite was woken by the sound of girls giggling. She called out to the girls and shone a light on their tent, and the noise settled. At this time, a guttural moaning noise was heard on the site, waking another counsellor in Willite's tent. The pair inspected the grounds with their flashlights before going back to bed. At 3am, girl scouts in the neighbouring camp heard someone cry out, Mama, and assumed one of the girls was having a bad dream. But the real nightmare had just begun. The following morning, Willite awoke at 6am ahead of the other counsellors to get a shower and prepare to wake the rest of the girls up. She decided she would walk to the main campground for a shower before the rest of the campers arose. As she paced along the trail, she saw a heap by the side of the walkway that looked like a pile of discarded sleeping bags underneath the trees. As she approached the mound in the fork of the trail, it became clear that it was something far more sinister than she could have anticipated. Approximately 140 steps away from tent number seven lay Doris's half-naked body. Bare from the waist down, her nightshirt was bunched around her stomach. A rope and a towel had been knotted around her throat. Someone had strangled her to death. Her hands had been taped behind her back. Impressions on the ground indicated a struggle had occurred. A short distance away were two zipped-up sleeping bags concealing Laurie's and Michelle's bloody bodies. The right side of Michelle's face was swollen and discoloured. Gashes to her face suggested she had been savagely beaten by an object. Both Laurie and Michelle were found with black electrical tape stretched across their mouths and their arms bound tightly behind their bodies with tape. It was later discovered that the girls had been sexually assaulted. Willite let out a scream and ran, ba- and ran back to the counsellor's tent to alert the others. There's a little girl dead, on the trail. Oh Lord D, we've got to count the children. Oh Lord D, we've got to count the children. That's what she says. And actually, Councillor D had already checked on the children before everyone settled down that previous evening. And everything looked normal, there was nothing suspicious to report. Um, And in the night, it had just been a typical Girl Scout camping trip. There had been girls messing about, giggling, getting up and down from their tents. Roasting marshmallows. Roasting marshmallows, having pillow fights. Singing Annie songs. Yeah. And the counsellors had had to tell them, shush now, go to bed. And so that is all fairly normal, but there were a couple of things in the night that just make it seem like something sinister was going on without them realising. So, for example, one of the scout girls reckons that a ominous figure shone a light into their tent. So this was tent number six. So the one just before the murder tent. Yeah. They reckoned that there was this ominous figure shining a light in, and when they looked, there was no one there. That's pretty creepy. Yep. Um, There had also been a loud bang in the night. Now, that could be something completely different, 
but who knows? Because when the scout counsellors went to look, again, nothing suspicious. They shone their lights around, all seemed well. So in the morning they have to do this head count um, and they're looking for three, uh, well, possibly any, any, any other uh, campers who might have been murdered that night. Horrible, horrible job. And then, well, they got the unenviable task of phoning up the parents. And all they can tell them, basically, is that their child is dead and there's been an incident. And police are at the scene trying to find out what's going on and then the news breaks to the rest of the world. Yeah, and while all that's going on, you've got the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation down at the campsite looking for clues. You've also got the um, highway troopers who are drafted in. Mm -hmm. And everyone is really keen to find out what's gone on because, you know, this kind of thing doesn't just happen in these places. It's really unusual that these girls should be killed on a camp trip. But when the investigators are there, they can see that a number of things are very clear, and that is that the two youngest girls had died in their tent. However, the other girl, Doris, she has been dragged out of the tent and killed. Investigators reckon that this happened at about 2 to 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is a really bloody, gory scene that we've got. There is blood in the tent, a big pool that looks like it, someone's tried to clean it up before they've made haste and got away. Seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I mean maybe it was dark and the murderer couldn't really see what what a mess he had made, basically. Um, yeah. And this is where Gene Leroy Hart comes back into play. Yeah, because let's not forget, he's in the forest next to the campsite, roaming about, having a jolly good time, being an escaped convict. It was Sheriff Weaver who suggested Hart as a murder suspect. Ten days later, police discovered a number of items in nearby caves that were very similar to those found at the scene, believed to be evidence that Hart had been in the area at the time of the murders. But for ten months, Hart remained uncaptured in the Cookson Hills. Dr Robert Phillips, an Oklahoma clinical psychologist, speculated as to the criminal profile of the person responsible for the murders. Phillips said that the perpetrator suffered from an overwhelming inferiority complex and was full of hate for themselves and the world. The motive of revenge was established through the doctor's analysis. He claimed that the murders had been committed as a way of hitting back at a society that he feels has mistreated him. He suspected the sexual sadist would offend again. Thanks to a tip-off to the OSBI, Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, on 7th April 1978, officers were able to locate Hart in a cabin in the area of Tahlequah, just 80 kilometres from the campsite. He was arrested and taken into custody. While being interviewed, Hart protested his innocence. According to the only interview he ever gave to a newspaper, the Cherokee Advocate, Hart knew that he was a suspect, but said that he hoped that by laying low, the police would find who really did it, and he would be off their radar. Even with Hart behind bars, the community was not convinced that the Cherokee man was the culprit. Hart's trial began in February 1979. After a month-long trial, it took the jury just six hours to deliberate. 
They could not believe that Hart had acted alone in killing three little girls in the dead of the night, without a witness to the events, particularly as the three victims had been dragged from their tent. Even though the jury refused to convict Hart, Weaver and a number of other law enforcement officials felt that a killer had been let off the hook. There wasn't a lawman who worked on the case who doubted Hart's guilt, said Weaver. So in court, Jean Leroy Hart is on the stand and there's lots of quite conflicting evidence. For example, OSBI chemists said that hairs found on the girl's body and found on Hart were exactly the same. And another specialist said that sperm taking from the victim's body was quite similar. So so bear in mind, this is 1979. This is um, early days of uh, forensic DNA testing. So it is not as precise, not anywhere near as precise as it is today. Then a fingerprint expert said that prints found on the flashlight weren't hearts. This is a flashlight that was found at the scene. That's right, yeah. Um, presumably... Uh, potentially uh, uh, what's considered a, um, a murder weapon, perhaps, because uh, a bludgeoning instrument was used on um, a couple of the victims. Um, and then another former jailmate of Hart's testified that Sheriff Weaver had confiscated these wedding photos that Hart had produced prior to his first arrest and that were ultimately found in a cave nearby the the site of the murders and that he had seen these on the sheriff's desk so he was basically implying that the photos are being planted and then finally the defense claimed that uh, a convicted kidnapper robber and rapist named bill stevens was was the culprit basically but uh, he had an alibi there was a cancelled check um, proved that he wasn't in the area at the time. So ultimately, Jean Leroy Hart was acquitted and not set free because obviously he had uh, the rest of his 305-year sentence to serve. Um, so I really, in, in a sense, made no odds to him at all. Um, he went back to jail and not long after, he died of a heart attack while lifting weights in prison. To date... 2008, they took DNA from uh, a semen-stained pillow, but that came back in inconclusive. And basically, um, it's it's a, an open case. It's un, unsolved, and there's no one in the frame for it. That's interesting because I spoke to a gentleman a little while back by the name of John Russell. Now, John Russell lives in Oklahoma. And he claims that while he was in prison some 40-odd years ago, I believe it was, um, for fraud-related charges, he reckons he came across a man who he firmly believes was the culprit for the Oklahoma Girl Scout killers. Mm -hmm. This gentleman he names as Carl Myers, who was a convicted murderer and paedophile. And they served time together um, in the prison. And he reckons that one evening... They were all sitting around and they had a bit too much to drink. And Karma's can... do in prison. You know, they had some kind of... Yeah. <laughs> They'd made some homebrew and it was quite strong and they had a little party and they got drinking. And as always happens, when you've been drinking too much, you say things maybe you shouldn't. 
like I, like killed those Girl Scouts. It, I guess it's prison banter, really, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, prison banter. <laughs> yeah. But John Russell is firm in his belief that this guy was telling the truth because I said to him, well, you're sure he wasn't just bragging, you know, prison, big I am, you know, big Oklahoma case that's unsolved. You know, ha, they never catch me. It's an odd thing to admit to in, in prison because really horrible things happen to paedophiles, paedophiles and rapists in, in Child prison. Child killers. Yeah, so to to freely admit to that, uh, yeah. But what happened in the following days, I think, is what made him so sure that this guy had been telling the truth because once the homebrew had worn off and once everyone had sort of calmed down... The regret kicks in. The, as it always does yeah. after a night of drinking. Um, and John Russell says that this Carl Myers chap and some other prison mates tried to have him stabbed and he had to be put in protective custody so that he wouldn't be killed by the inmates. Um, and he reckons that Carl Myers had some kind of protection because he was never investigated over these these murders. Um, and then once he got out of prison, he tried to take this confession that he had further, but the FBI and the OSBI didn't want to know because he was known as a quote-unquote scammer and they figured that he was just up to no good trying to stir trouble. But what he's doing at the moment is he's trying to produce a film about the Girl Scout murders called Candles and it's about this confession that he's got from Carl Myers who died after 13 years on death row, and he's trying to now expose the truth of what really happened. And one last interesting point to make is that no murder weapon has ever been found, nor has whatever was used to bludgeon Michelle and Laurie been identified, despite this flashlight being found on the site, which was subsequently proved not to have Jean Leura Hart's prints on. Yeah, which is an odd, odd thing because the OSBI would have completely scoured that whole crime scene and the nearby, nearby forest and the cave um, for anything like that. Yeah. I mean, do you think Hart did it? Well, Gene Le- Leroy Hart's dead now, so we can say what we like about him, <laughs> really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also, he wasn't a very nice person, so... Um, I, but at the same time, I, I, I don't know. It is suspicious that he was in the area at the time. Um, but there was so much conflicting evidence. If I was to say, yes, he did it, then I, I think it suggests that there was some other party involved in um, distracting people um, away from Jean Lee Royhart. Two of the families filed a lawsuit against the Magic Empire Council, alleging that the company's negligence led to their daughters' deaths. The families of Laurie and Doris alleged that the council operated the site poorly, without properly securing the area to prevent the killer from sneaking in and murdering their children. Each sought $2.5 million in damages. However, their lawsuit was unsuccessful. Following the tragedy at Camp Scott, the gates to the property were never reopened. In 1988, the Magic Empire Council made the decision to sell the land where the murders took place. In recent years, the investigation into the brutal slaying has wound down 
and few new leads have been generated. To this day, Hart is the only suspect to have ever been tried for the murders. The case remains open, but inactive, according to the OSBI. Meanwhile, the land where the murders took place remains untouched and semi-abandoned, leaving a horror story of three little girls dragged from their tents in the middle of a summer night to haunt the community. Thank you.